0: I'd like to read two passages of scripture this morning. The first is from Genesis chapter 1. And the second is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 8. Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move Along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything, every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The second reading is from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last week we just embarked on a new series that we're going to look at on Sunday mornings for some time and the the theme and title of it is quite simply being human. We want to think for a little while about some of the aspects of what it means to be human. Uh, in God's world and the world that he has created and to think about some of the joys and difficulties that we experience as human beings and so by way of introduction we're just thinking about some of the basic elements of what it means to be human as we discover this in scripture last week we were thinking about two things in particular we were thinking about what we were made from and what we are made in we are made from the dirt as it were Because God gathers together the dust of the ground and he forms a human being and then breathes life into that human being. And it's no disrespect to you if I say to you, you're from the dirt. God thought it was a good idea. It was part and parcel of how he was making things and he was pleased with what he made, which is very clear in Genesis chapter 1. Being human is not a mistake. Having a body is not shameful. It's the way God has made us. It's God's intention and God's design. What we do as humans may be shameful. Being human, having bodies, is not a problem. It's not a mistake. It's not something which we want to break free from. It's part and parcel of how God ordained things. Yes, the things we do with our bodies are shameful, but we know because of Christ and his gospel that things are not over. Things can be reworked, things can be redeemed, and the image of God can be seen again in us. The second thing about being made from the dirt that we thought about, which we're going to develop later, is this idea of the need for respect for God's creation and for each other. We share a great deal in common. You may remember the story uh, from Eugene Peterson's book, Christ Plays in Ten Thousand Places, that we talked about, Hence the Flowers, and if you weren't here last week, I'll not go into it, you can just have a look at the nice flowers. (coughs) second thing we thought about was what it means to be made in the image of God. It becomes very clear in Genesis chapter 1 that that's God's intention. Images for the Jewish community and the Jewish people were a big no-no. Even images on coins, like the Roman coins in Jesus' day, was a bit of an affront. But not just because God couldn't and shouldn't be represented in wood and stone, which led to idolatry. But also because of what we read in Scripture. The Scripture is very clear that we are made in the image of God. That is something we need to reflect on, something that we need to think about. And being made in the image of God means we share characteristics with God, or God has devolved to us characteristics which He chooses for us to have. Things like being creative, things like being able to manage and manage the world that He has made. And God has done this that we might glorify him and enjoy him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It speaks to of our value and worth. Not given to us by virtue of our intellectual or physical capacity. Not given to us by virtue of our race or our color. But by virtue of being made in the image of God. It speaks to us. About how our abilities and our gifts reflect the creator and should be employed and used to his glory, whether they are the gifts of music or other artistic gifts or the gifts of administration or whatever it may be that God gives to us. It speaks of our purpose, though lost, to be managers and a means of praise to God. And it speaks to us about our attitude as Christians and our behavior as Christians when we think about being human and being made in the image of God. And we considered, for example, what James says in James chapter 3 and verse 9, when he talks about use of our tongues and slandering people. And he says it shouldn't happen. We should not, with the same tongue, praise God and slander our uh, other people who are made in the image of God. This morning, briefly, I want us to think about what we were made for and what we have made of it. What we were made for was relationship and glory. Richard Dawkins in one of his books talks about the the response of many people, particularly Christians, which he considers to be a rather pathetic response to tragedies that happen in life. He highlights one particular tragedy of a a bus accident in which quite a number of children were killed. And he proposed the attempt on the part of religious people, particularly Christians, to make any sense out of the world or to make any sense out of these kinds of happenings. And he talks about how there is no reason, there is no why answer. There is just pure blind chance. It's the perfectly logical conclusion from an atheistic position. But if you come to human life and being human from a Christian position, which inevitably is a creationist position, then you have to see things very differently. The scripture says, in the beginning, God created We might argue, we might discuss and debate the process of that creation or how he did it, but there is no argument about the fact that he did it. God created. And if the logic of Dawkins' atheism is that there is no particular point or reason for our existence, the logic of the position of a Christian is very different. God made everything out of nothing, but he didn't do it for nothing. There is nothing that exists for no reason at all. Being human means we were made for a reason. We were made for relationship and glory. The first clues of this come in the passage that we read just a little earlier in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Where God speaks about, let us make man in our image. However you understand the plural reference there, it clearly indicates a sense of relationship. Some people would argue that it's a reference to the heavenly court. God is saying to the heavenly court, let us make man in our image. It seems much more likely that it's a reference to the nature of God himself. Who throughout the pages of scripture as revelation unfolds becomes apparent as father, word and spirit. Or father, son and spirit. And clearly the Bible teaches about the nature of relationship that exists within God himself. You can think of passages like John chapter 1 which speaks about how in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You can think of John 14 and how Jesus speaks about being one with the Father. His prayer in John 17. All of this indicates for us the sense of relationship that exists within God. And being made in the image of God says something about being made for relationship. And Genesis makes it very clear that we were made for relationship with God. Genesis chapter 1 in the passage that we read in his image. We were made for relationship as male and female. That becomes very clear in Genesis chapter 2 as you read the detailed account of how God considers the making of man and woman one for the other. Genesis 3 makes it very clear that the nature of the relationship is to be man, woman and God. Genesis 4 makes it clear that that relationship extends into offspring. Genesis 5 and 6 make it clear that that relationship extends into community. And all the difficulties that might be associated with it. We were made for relationship. Primarily our relationship with God, but for relationships with each other as human beings. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Michelangelo's famous painting, The Creation of Adam, adorns the roof of the Sistine Chapel. It's a very interesting picture. You may be able to see some elements of it here behind me. He has Adam on the left of the picture, this human being which is beautifully formed, but there's something lifeless, there's something not quite right. And you can see from the little abstract in the middle this idea of the two hands and he's representing God on the right hand side coming towards Adam whom he has made. And one is full of purpose and direction, the other seems to be almost lifeless and it seems to be because there is yet to come for Adam all that God has intended for him. And in this image that comes behind, very interesting, if you want to get into that, get onto the web and read all the stuff. Is it a human brain that's depicted there? Is it whatever? But certainly what is depicted is this idea of others. Some people think Michelangelo was speaking about Eve and other people. And the whole idea is that Adam is nothing without God's endowment of power and life. That Adam is nothing without the relationships that God is going to bring him into. It's an attempt by an artist to portray many of these things. We were made for relationship. And as Christians, relationships have to be important to us. I think that's one of the reasons why religion is such a critical aspect of humanity. Atheism arises every now and then as a reaction. But it has never successfully supplanted religion. Because religion and religious quest, whatever form it takes, is a quest to to engage in and to rediscover or to know some kind of relationship with some kind of God. Because there is just something about us as human beings that recognizes that that is how and why we were made. The relationship may be one of fear or mutuality or respect depending on the particular religion. But there is in humanity an awareness, a sense of need for relationship. And the Bible makes it clear why. The Bible says it's because we were created in the image of God. And God in his very nature understands, experiences, is relational. And that's why it's so important for us as well. But we're not only made for relationship, we are also made for glory. Which is why I read the words of that psalm, that wonderful psalm, Psalm 8. A psalm which is written in praise of God. What is man that you are mindful of? him? Standing back and thinking of the mercy and the compassion and the greatness of God. But a psalm that reflects on all that we just read earlier in Genesis chapter 1. And the way in which God had made him ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. All that swims in the paths of the sea. What is man that you are mindful of? him, Or the son of man that you care for him? God in his greatness, God in his glory, God in his fearlessness created us not just for relationship but also to share in his glory. Now this theme you'll find taken up in the New Testament. You'll find it taken up particularly in relation to Jesus. When you go to Hebrews chapter 2, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll find that Paul and the writer of the Hebrews take Psalm 8, and they use it in a very specific way to think about how Jesus as the Son of Man, in a very full and real sense, is the one to whom all of this applies with such glory. But that's why we were made. We were made to be crowned with glory and honor. Because we were made beautifully, we were made wonderfully, we were made perfectly. We were the pinnacle of God's creation. We were the high point of all he had been doing in creation. And when he had finished making man and woman, he stepped back and saw that everything that he had made was good. There is a film called The Thin Red Line. Many of you, I suspect, would hate it. I happen to like it. It's a three-hour war film. But one of the lines that recurs in that film is this line as one of these soldiers, brutalized by his own act, actions and, and the war and, and, and the destruction around it, is asking the question, "Where has all the glory gone?" Which is the question that we're left with, because being human, we were not only made for relationship and glory, but being human, we have made a mess. And that's the reality. The story unfolds in Genesis chapter 3. The nature of the relationship between God and mankind is called into question. You will not surely die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Seeds of doubt about the nature, the integrity of the relationship between God and man and woman is called into question. God's motives are not honourable. He is not to be trusted. The relationship between man and woman and God becomes disrupted. In verses 8 to 10, the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid. No longer is there openness, no longer is there frankness, no longer is there soundness in the relationship between us as humans and God. The relationship between us as human beings becomes fractured and the blame game starts. The woman gave me and i at within a short time that becomes murder and violence and destructive and human relationships are poisoned and as you read through those early chapters of genesis you see that at the core of what we refer to as sin is this rebelliousness which breaks and destroys relationships refuses to accept the integrity of god and the way in which he relates to us and chooses to relate on our own terms Terms of rebellion and rejection of him and his laws. And that as a consequence, our human relationships are constantly strained and constantly under pressure and fractious and broken. Broken relationships are the hallmark of our human existence. They come at every level. They come at the family level, they come at the personal level, they come at the national level, they come at the community level, they come by virtue of identity of race, of religion, whatever it is everything about us, every relationship that God ever intended us to have for good and for glory we have marred by our sinfulness and our rebellion so we were made for relationship and glory but we have made a mess, a sorry mess and it's represented in my life and your life and in every life sitting in this room this morning In different ways, for different reasons. To different levels of pain and hurt and sorrow and sadness. It mingles with our joy and the experience of life that God has blessed us with. But it's our responsibility. It's our choices. It's our actions. It's what the Bible calls sin. So as we think of these two things, what can we take from this this morning as we begin this journey in thinking about what it means to be human? First thing I want to say is simply this. As we think about what we were created for and the mess that we have made from it, we should listen carefully to what it is that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 34 to 40. Words with which we're very familiar, but it's very easy to skip over them. In that passage, um, an expert of the law comes to Jesus to test him, which is the great commandment. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Why are these two commandments the most important? They are the most important because they go to the heart of why we were created and the mess we have made of it. They're the most important because they talk about re-establishing rightly our relationship with God and our relationships with our neighbors, irrespective of who they are. We need to hear those words and we need to take Jesus seriously because he fully understands our condition as human beings. He was able to see that in being human, what we have lost most is an understanding of why we were created created for relationship with God and with each other, created for glory. And so he brings together the importance of securing and restoring our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow human beings. How well have we grasped how important those words of Jesus are? How well have we grasped how important it is that I take that And seek to work that out in my life on a day and daily basis. You see, if we grasp it, we understand the reason why the Apostle Paul emphasizes constantly that the outworking of our faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation in Christ, is to be seen in our relationships. It's a critical factor in demonstrating the reality of conversion to Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 12, when he's expounding the gospel in practical terms and explaining the implications of the gospel, what's one of the first things that he majors on in Romans chapter 12? It's the theme of love. The call to love one another and to demonstrate the love of God in our human relationships. When he's writing in the letter to the Corinthians and he's writing on these great themes of faith, hope and love, which one does he demonstrate as being the greatest? Which one does he set at the pinnacle? Love, because love is about the outworking, it is about the restoring of relationships, a relationship with God and relationships with each other. As he writes in Ephesians, and he talks about our salvation and how it comes about, that it's not by works, it's by faith, so that we can't boast. What is it that he goes on to say? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is to be a renewal of relationships with God and with our fellow human beings when we are in Christ. That's why Christ centers on these things. And that's why Paul in Galatians 5 and verse 6 makes this astounding comment. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. This is what we were made for. We have made a terrible mess by our rebelliousness. And therefore, as Christians, we ought to hear clearly the words of Jesus as he makes it very clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. For everything else about the law and everything else about the witness of the prophets was about trying to help us see how that relationship, that purpose for which we were created, was to be restored the recovering of the significance of being made in the image of God and being made for relationships with God and with fellow human beings and made for glory makes sense of the New Testament themes of love, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. And if we fail to understand the biblical picture of what it means to be human, then the Bible's teaching on sin and righteousness and justice will always only ever be about rules and regulations. If we don't grasp, if we don't preach what it means to be human according to Scripture, then the gospel will make little sense in a Western world that assumes nothing about being made in the image of God. So, what should we do in the light of this? Well, I think what we should do in the light of this is think again about ourselves and think again about how we live. I'm sure you will have heard discussions and comments about self-image. It's a term that's often overrated, I think, but also underrated. Overrated because sometimes it's portrayed as the cure for all kinds of ills. It's just your poor self-image and you need to build it up. Which is often defined in terms of affirming your own goodness and your own worth in very uh, vague ways. But it is a term that's often underrated by Christians. Developed and spoken of biblically, a sound self-image means we recognize and we're not afraid that we're made from the dirt. Because we know we're made in the image of God. We know where we were created for relationships and glory and we accept that we have made a mess. And that opens the way to make sense of who I am, why I'm here, what's wrong with me why I feel the way I do, and what should be done about how I live now that I find myself as a Christian in Christ Jesus. And in practical terms, that means thinking about how I view and use my body. Paul's very specific about this in Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 12. He says, take your bodies and use them as instruments of righteousness, not as selfish instruments of wickedness. It means that I need to think about why I am in Christ. Why God has called me. Because God has prepared in advance good works for me to do. And therefore the direction of my thinking about what I'm doing with my life needs to be brought into line with that knowledge. In practical terms it means I need to think about how I relate to those around me. And the Apostle Peter will give us a lot of very practical help and advice on how to do that. It means thinking about consciously trying to imitate God. As I think, for example, of what John says in 1 John chapter 4 about God as love. And how those who are in God should love as God has loved. So, in thinking about what it means to be human, it raises issues for us of what we should take from this in terms of our understanding of the significance of what it is that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 and why it's so critically important. And it also raises issues for us about what we should do in the light of it. How we should think about the use of our bodies and the nature of our relationships. And how we maintain them. Because we were made from the dirt. We were made in the image of God. What striking contrast. We were made for relationship and glory. And yes, we have made a mess because of our rebellion. But in Christ Jesus, that image is being renewed restored and those relationships need to be worked at and given the priority that they ought to have and that glory will begin to be seen again because of Christ we're going to sing together a hymn which is a kind of prayer dear Lord and Father of mankind forgive our foolish ways reclothe us in our rightful mind and purer lives thy service find In deeper reverence, praise. Let's stand and sing this together. Let's stand together.